Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Ken Goldberg. Ken is a professor of engineering at UC Berkeley. Ken, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is great to finally get you on this show. We've been talking about this for a bit. Uh, you know, I meant to ask you before we started, last time you were, uh, you mentioned you were working on a book. Um, maybe we'll, did I get that? Am I remembering that right? Well, I think I'm, I, I've been thinking about that for a while, but I'm also thinking about it and more right now, an article. Let's put okay. it that way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get to the article. I think I first came across you and some of your work, uh, in the context of Dexnet. Uh, I saw that at a Siemens Innovation Fair last year, and I think we exchanged some tweets and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, I would really love for you to introduce yourself to the audience and share a little bit about your uh, background and how you came into working in robotics and AI. Okay, great. I Well, first, since you mentioned Twitter, and tw I, I should mention my Twitter handle, which is at Ken underscore Goldberg. And I've been trained very well by my daughter to post there at least once a day. So <laughs> I've got it. I've actually found it a very interesting channel. So so I am posting technical things as well as uh, as updates about things that I that I'm finding out, which is that I'm learning about, which is um I find very useful. So my background is that I was uh, I, I went to University of Pennsylvania and then went to Carnegie Mellon for a PhD. I was at USC for four years and then moved to Berkeley where I've mm -hmm. been for now 25 years. Wow. I, here I run a lab. The, we, we call it the Auto Lab for Automation Science and Engineering. And we have approximately 30 students doing research in there. And we're doing work. There's, there's, there's postdocs, graduate students, and a good number of undergrads. And we're also associated with other labs like the Berkeley AI Research Lab and the RISE Lab and Citrus and other programs at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Our particular lab is interested in, in, in doing research on, on robotics, basically on algorithmic approaches to robotics. And specifically, in the last few years, we've been focusing on learning, methods for, for imitation learning, deep learning, and reinforcement learning for control of robots in applications from grasping, as you mentioned, which is a, a primary one I've been working on for, for 35 years, to surgery surgical assistance, um, hu assisting human surgeons for, for robotics, and home robots to, especially for seniors and in who are, who are, who prefer to live at home. And the last area is very new, and we can talk about it later, is, uh, is agriculture. And we have a new approach to polyculture farming that we're exploring using deep learning. So one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, in looking at your bio is in spite of the fact that you are a highly accomplished roboticist, you start your, your bio starts with Ken Goldberg as an artist. Uh, and so your art clearly must be very important to you. I actually saw some sketches behind you. Um, and I'm curious, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about Ken as an artist and, you know, how, if, if at all that ties into your work, it's not the usual fare of, uh, this podcast, but um, then I saw somewhere else you were a filmmaker as well. 
Um, is that your art? Like, <laughs> tell us about that. Okay. Well, actually, I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. And I, okay. I, I, I basically, my mother said, listen, you can be an artist after you become an engineer. So um, <laughs> she 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 was very wise, and and I think it, it was it was a it was a good choice for me because I actually love both. Art is something that I I take very seriously. I think it's often underrated by by many people, especially engineers who think of it as as lightweight. It's actually just the opposite. And trying to produce something that's meaningful in the art world is extremely difficult and demanding. So I've spent a lot of time studying art. I have made a series of installations and projects that almost always involve technology in some way, but they're also commenting on the role of technology in society. So probably best known piece is a project is a project called the Telegarden that my students and I set up in the very early, very early years of the internet. So it was 1995 mm-hmm. that we we connected a industrial robot arm to the web interface at the time, which was Mosaic browser. And we built an interface that would allow you from your screen, from anywhere, from your laptop. Um, there were no cell phones at the time, mm-hmm. but you could you could log you in. You could control and this thing. I think I remember this. It. Right. Yeah. It was a very fun project. We thought, well, it's kind of curious, you know, wh- wh- who would use it, if anyone. And we got thousands of people coming in mm-hmm. and, and, and moving the robot. But the, the part of what was made in an artwork was the context, because it was sitting inside a garden. A real physical garden, so you could plant and water seeds remotely, and then we got tens of thousands. And we estimate that over the the time that project was was that robot was available online, which was approximately nine years, it was visited and and participate, and over a hundred thousand people participated in the in the project. That's awesome. That's awesome. And again, kind of the technology and art coming together. Right. So that was the thing, uh, Sam, because one of the, the ideas was that I. I don't think I would have pursued that if I had just stuck with my research plans at the time. But because this came out and it offered a way to reach a, at the time what I saw as a potentially very broad audience, I started putting effort into this. And, my, and then I, there was a fantastic team of students who worked on it. And then we, we, I was thrilled with the, the, the idea that you could take a, a robot and you could put it into the hands, essentially, of potentially millions of people. Mm-hmm. And then there were there was a proof of concept. There were all the user interface questions. There it turned out that there were lots of interesting theoretical questions that came out of that. So after that project, we did a series of subsequent projects and then had an NSF grant to develop versions of this. We have a patent uh, related to this. That's so awesome. yeah, it really grew into a whole new direction of research that that really started with art. Awesome, awesome. And so, tell us a little bit uh, about your research interests nowadays, more broadly. So, we're still doing art, and I can come back to that. There's a new okay. project, but the 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 lab right now has been been very very focused on robot learning, mm-hmm. and especially as as I know your your listeners are very aware, there's been a huge revolution in the past decade, and so we've been we were interested in this before. The, the advances in deep learning started, but we, now it really has become a huge focus for us. So in particular, we have this, we've been working in robot grasping for many years. And then when deep learning came out, we saw an opportunity to apply it. I can tell you that story if you, if you would like, how we do it. 
Maybe start from the perspective of the grounding on the challenges associated with grasping. Like we see these pictures of, you know, whether they're, um, you know, robot, robot hands or more industrial types of robots or uh, prostheses. And, you know, they can grasp like we've seen. We've all seen, you know, pictures of that. Uh, but maybe it's harder than it looks or, you know, maybe the, the what are the opportunities that, you know, we've not yet figured out? Oh, good. OK, so I can I can answer that. Partly, I, I've realized only in the last few years that part of the reason I believe I went into this field was that I myself as a kid was incre- was incredibly clumsy. Uh-huh. I, I still I still am. <laughs> I mean, you know, anyone would throw me a ball, I would drop it. And so, uh, you know, I was the last kid getting picked for any sports uh, games or anything like that. And it was just that I, I think that made, unconsciously made me interested in in trying to figure this thing out. Like, how, how do you grasp things? Mm. And many years later, when I was in uh, undergraduate, I, I joined a laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania, and they were studying various aspects of tactile sensing. And, and, and I built a very simple hand with another student. And we started really exploring this, this question of how do you grasp things? And it is fundamentally difficult for robots. I like to say that robots remain incredibly clumsy today. Mm. They're much better than they were, but industrial arms, if you give them novel objects, they will drop them with a fairly high frequency. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem because what you really want is you want, um, you want to be able to pick up anything that's put in front of you. And the application, the big application that's growing enormously right now is e-commerce. So you want to be able to take objects, you know, every order is different. So you want to take things from bins and pack them, lift them out of the bin, grasp them and put them into boxes or bags for shipment. And that turns out to be a bottleneck right now for robotics. And Still, Amazon's been holding competitions to for teams to figure out how to do this for a few years now, right? Right. So they had a very interesting competition called Amazon Picking Challenge, and picking is the word mm-hmm. for grasping it out of a bin. And they they had and it pushed the field forward in a very very constructive way, and there were there was progress made. But however, they stopped doing that about three years ago. Oh, really? Okay. And the but well, the good news is that it did bring a number of researchers into this. Uh, got a number of researchers interested, and now there's really uh, a great a great number of, of researchers working on this. Now, we had been working on it for, as I mentioned, 35 years, I mean, since I was an undergrad. And so about seven or eight years ago, we were looking at new ways of grasping, and, and, and we were working with Google and talking with them about um, what we, we call the dexterity network. And the idea there was to use a, an analogy with machine vision, and you're familiar mm-hmm. with ImageNet, and I'm sure you've talked about it on the on the podcast. Yep. So ImageNet uh, really transformed machine learning by having a very large data set of labeled images, and it seemed that you get to a critical mass, enough labeled images that then you could train a system and it could start to generalize to new images. So the question for us was, could we do something analogous in grasping? by assess, assembling a very large data set of three-dimensional objects, mm-hmm. three-dimensional models, CAD models, and then labeling them with grasps, and specifically robust grasps. So then we could start to learn from those examples. A, ro- a robust grasp meaning the ah, okay. robot actually has the object and it's not in some precarious position. It's, its fingers are in the right place, so to speak. 
Right. And actually, let me, I'm glad you asked that, that question because that, that's actually very important. So by robust, we mean robust to the following, uncertainty in sensing, control, and physics. Mm-hmm. So this is a fundamental reason why robots are still clumsy mm-hmm. because of this uncertainty. What do I mean? Well, let's start with, with perception. Just even if you have the highest resolution camera available and you look at a scene, you still don't know the precise geometry of where everything is in that scene. And in the, there has now been advances in depth sensors, which I can talk about because I'm a big believer in those. I think those are really game-changing. But they still don't completely solve this problem because if there's anything reflective or transparent on the surface that causes the light to react in unpredictable ways. And so you, you don't get, it doesn't register as an exact a correct position of where that surface really is. And are you primarily referring to LIDAR and connect types of sensors or, exactly. or is there something else? in? in no, that's space? what I'm referring okay. to. And those okay. are, there's now a whole new genre of such cameras coming out that are lower in cost, higher resolution, higher frame rate, more reliable for various reasons. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. But it doesn't solve the problem. It, it actually facilitates making progress. Mm-hmm. So the perception is still a huge problem. I'm looking down at the scene, even right now at my desk, and I, I have a sense of where things are. But a robot doesn't actually fig, can't really figure out exactly where things are in space. Mm-hmm. Second of all, the control. And by that, I mean that robot may move its gripper. And or, is that, I mean, that even that is... It, an interesting question, right? Because, you know, certainly if it's uh, a single two-dimensional image, then, yeah, we understand why the robot doesn't, uh, can't figure out where things are. But now when you're introducing in stereoscopic images and LIDAR and all these things, like, we should be able to give the robot enough data point that it should be able to figure it out. Um, But there's, you know, there's still something missing. Is it uh, is it that we have kind of surpassed our capacity from a kind of compute per unit time perspective? Or is it that, you know, locating objects on a flat surface requires some fundamental human intelligence that we haven't transferred to robots yet? Or is it something totally different? <laughs> a little bit of all of those. I mean, one of it is that you, you would think, right, if you put multiple cameras and then you use stereo and depth sensors, that that would, would help you. But remember, every time you add another modality, another sensor, you actually add more complexity. Mm-hmm. And you end up with more cases where you have contradictions between what these different sensors are telling you. Mm-hmm. So in fact, what you get is these, the results are that you, you, you actually have a system will often have, a, have, have two aspects of its own sensory apparatus telling it two different things. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's a problem. So then it doesn't know what to trust. So that throwing more, more and more sensors does not, does not solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The other is you mentioned computation. So that I actually think you're you're right. We are we are computation is not necessarily the bottleneck. Right now we have very fast computing and we can distribute it over many uh, many many processors. But the it 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 is challenging when you have to build statistical models because of the residual uncertainty. You don't actually know. So you want to essentially say, here's where I think it is and here's my confidence level. Mm-hmm. On top of that, so there's a really that you're actually have, you're dealing with a statistical model of the environment, and that is actually fairly high dimensional, and you have to there is some com- computational complexity there. 
Mm-hmm. The, the, the other thing, though, is that humans and animals, by the way, seem to cope very well with the problem like grasping and, and interacting with the physical world because we bring to it a, a, a sort of inherent understanding, a deeper understanding about the, the nature of objects. And so this is very subtle. We don't really, I can't describe this exactly. It's, 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 it's intuitive to us how mm-hmm. to pick things up. But it's very hard for us to, to, to formalize that intuition and put, give that to a robot. Mm-hmm. So, that, so the sensing is still a problem. And anyone who says, oh, that's a solved problem, doesn't really know the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right? And this is true, by the way, for self-driving cars and every, every other application where you want to perceive the environment. And by the way, it matters for sensing for, for grasping very critically because for a car, maybe an inch one way or another doesn't matter. Although it does if you're on the edge of a cliff. But right. for grasping, one inch makes all the difference. Uh, even a half an even inch. Even less. Yeah. Even a half exactly. A millimeter or less can make the difference between holding something and dropping it. Right. So that's why it matters to get this exactly right. It's very subtle. Now, that's all in the sensing. That's in the control aspect I was starting to say, which is that the robot has to now get its manipulator and its gripper and its fingertips to the precise position in space, consistent with what it's what it believes is happening in, from its sensors. Mm-hmm. Okay, For a robust grasp. So, so wait, I'll come back to robust. Right, we're almost <laughs> the third one. The third one is is uh, is is physics. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we don't know, often know, if I look at an object, I don't know exactly where the center of mass of that object is. Very importantly, I don't know its frictional properties. And friction is still an immense unknown for science. I, I like to say that we can predict the motion of, a, of a, an asteroid a billion miles away far better than we can predict the motion of pushing a pencil across a table. Hmm. Because you actually can't predict the latter. Is that true? Is that, that's, that's hard true. to believe. Like, Try I, it. Put a pencil I mean, down right now. I, I thought I did that in mechanics class many years ago. There's oh, yeah, a coefficient of static friction, a coefficient I, of dynamic friction. Myths. I apply a force and I, that tells me how far I go. <laughs> no, those are great. What are you talking about, Ken? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Coulomb friction, right? The law of Coulomb friction. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't actually work that way. So it's a it's a reasonable approximation. But look at just pushing, take a pencil, put it on your on your desk, and put your finger in the hold it horizontally, and then put your finger in at the middle approximately and start pushing it. At a certain point, it's gonna rotate uh off your finger. And you don't know where that's going to happen. And if you do it again, it'll do it somewhere different. Every time you do it, it's somewhere different. Mm-hmm. Why? What's going on? Because it matters. Because really what's going on under there is a chaotic system. And it has to do with the, the fact table's that- table's a little dirty. Right. The pen's one, a lot of out of uh, true. One microscopic grain of sand, of anything under there, is going to cause it to behave extremely differently than if that, that sand wasn't there. So, and we Which can't- Which would lend itself to some kind of- statistical probabilistic distribution of how the pen's going to tumble. Right. But here's the thing is that, in fact, that's another example where the statistics is not necessarily going to help you because it's not going to be a nice Gaussian distribution of where it's going to end up. It actually will end up in a, possibly a very a, a very multimodal distribution. Uh, so it's very it, it may be a non-parametric distribution of where the pen will end up in space, and it's very hard to model or predict. It's going to change every time you, there's a little bit of moisture or dust on your table, and you so can't even if you just want a robot to push pens. <laughs> you're out of luck. Out of luck. Pencil pushers. 
Okay, <laughs> robots can't do it. So one of the things that's really interesting is that um, these three elements together conspire to make robotics, gra robot grasping, extremely difficult. The uncertainty in perception, uncertainty in control, and uncertainty in physics. Mm. Those are those are fundamental. Now, what I, let's come back to robust. What I mean by robust. What I mean to that by that is that can I look for a grasp that'll be robust, that'll be insensitive to my uncertainty in those three elements? What I mean by that is I want to grasp that even if my, my perception is slightly off, even if my control is slightly off, and even if the physics is slightly off, I'll still be able to pick the object up successfully. That's a robust grasp. So an example you know, if you pick up a, a, a glass of wine, for example, you put your hands under it, you sort of, you put your fingers apart, you scoop up around the, the stem, right? Mm -hmm. And then you lift. Now that's robust grasp because even if this, the, the glass isn't quite where you thought it was, even if your hand isn't quite where you thought it was, and even if the, 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 the thing is slippery, you're still going to be able to pick it up, right? right? That's a robust grasp. So it turns out that for most objects, there are grasps that are more or less robust. And what we're trying to do is get a robot to learn that quality, that mm -hmm. robustness. And we can generate that by using the physics that you're talking about, that you learned, and actually goes all the way back two centuries of beautiful me mechanics of understanding the physics and forces and torques, wrenches in space that characterize what happens if we know everything. Mm -hmm. But then what we do is perturb that statistically. And we say, if we can, if it's robust, it works for all these statistical perturbations with high probability, then we say it's a robust grasp. Now, before we make our way back to DexNet, <laughs> which okay. is where we started here, you brought up an interesting point about the kind of marriage of physics and statistics. When I talk to some of your frequent collaborators, uh, Sergey Levine, Peter Abiel come to mind, the impression I get from them, maybe less so now than years ago, was that, hey, we should throw away all the physics and just get the sensors and let the computers learn mm. how all the physics is going to work. Uh, when I talk to more traditional roboticists, they are more interested in preserving everything that we've learned in the past couple of centuries <laughs> via physics. Mm -hmm. uh, I get the, well, you tell me, where, where are you in that uh, kind of with feed in both worlds? Good. I it's it, I like that you you asked that. I I call the, the 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 old physics the classic physics the first wave of robot grasping, mm -hmm. and that's really dominated and still very very common in the robotics conferences and journals. Okay. So and it's very well grounded. It's beautiful. It's beautiful mathematics. Beautiful um, beautiful theory. So that's the first wave. The second wave is. Really, robot learning, which Peter, Sergey, and many others are very excited about today, which is purely data-driven approaches that say, forget about the physics, but let's just learn it. Let's just mm -hmm. learn it from observation purely. And I'm actually, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of what I call the third wave. And that is to synthesize those two, to use the physics where it's appropriate and use learning where it's appropriate. That those combination is exactly what we need. Figuring out where that where that combination is is the challenge, and, and that's really it. the story behind DexNet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so DexNet, you assembled this data set of CAD models and grasps, and then what did you do with it? So what we did was we applied the first wave, the physics and the statistics, to lots and lots of of simulated models. Okay. So 
we just basically simulated and said, are these robust to simulations of perturbations for each of the uh, of each of the candidate grasps? And we checked for many many combinations and found grasps that are robust. So we used that whole first wave, all that beautiful theory there. Then we took the examples that were generated and used those to train a deep learning system to be able to generalize to new examples. And one thing that's important is that we we did this with a with three-dimensional models. So I occurred to me that if we're going to try and model the, the perception part, what we really care about is the three-dimensional arrangement of the surfaces and the points in space. I don't care about the color of things or the texture on things. In fact, that's a distraction. So we asked, could we do this without with, with just pure depth sensors? So what, and the other nice thing about depth sensing is that you can simulate it very nicely. Simulating color images actually turns out to be very hard, and I can we can talk more about why. But it's it's that in in simulation you can you can say you know the points in space perfectly. There you know everything. By the way, there's no un, there's no uncertainty at all. But what you can do is now add a little bit of noise to what you would say is what would a depth sensor see if it looked at this scene, right? And now you can say okay, but I know because we're talking know, about the depth sensor the depth simulation sensor. or the imagery. This is a depth sensor. The depth sensor. A depth sensor is is creating an image, but it's a depth image, if you will. Right. Right. So it's it's it, and that's all it sees. Okay. Right. It's it's throwing out what we call RGB color information, and it's only using the depth information. Yeah. So now I have an arrangement of points in space, and then I know what a grasp that a successful grasp when when that arrangement of points corresponds to a successful grasp or not. Okay. Because I'm using the physics. And, and statistical model of the sensor. Are we, how do you even represent that? Is that you have, you know, for a cylinder, you've got, you know, four ideal points on one side and one ideal point on the other side. And you do like some kind of distance metric of the, you know, the fingers to those points or something, or like. How do you do that? Even, okay. So, so two things. Even representing that sounds hard. Well, actually, so if I have a, a cylinder, right, I can I can look at two points on opposite sides of the cylinder. I can generate friction cones around those, right? Mm -hmm. And I can just check if those two friction cones intersect. Then actually by the old, by the first wave of, of, of grasping, I can check if that, that grasp is going to succeed oh, okay. or not. Yeah. So that that's that's fairly, you know, that that's very, fairly understood. We figured I, that out. If I knew everything, then I could do a check that would tell me if it succeeds or not. Got it. But but since I don't know everything, what I would do is I say, well, here if I if I change it ever so slightly in all these different ways, if it still works, well then it's robust. Now what we do is we start with a perfect model of these objects. Then mm -hmm. we say, okay, we know what the good grasps are because we've done I mean, the, the robust grasps are for those perfect models. And then we say, let's make a let's pretend we we actually have a, a fairly noisy sensor, which we do in practice. And so we can simulate that noise, just add noise to all the little points that you would detect with your with your depth camera. So now you have a, a noisy pattern of points in space, and you know what the true robust grasp was for that pattern of points. Mm -hmm. So that is the input to, an, that's one example of a, of a robust grasp. And you run that through, and you actually have already computed the probability of success. So the output is just a scalar number from zero to one, which is the quality, we call it, the probability that that grasp will succeed. Got it. Okay, that's one example. Now we generate millions of these examples. And we can do this very fast, actually. You can generate the examples overnight. 
Then what we say is, okay, now we have a nice data set. It's not quite as big as ImageNet, right? But it's mm-hmm. pretty nice sized. And by the way, I have to give it both positive and negative examples. So I have to give it a whole range of qualities so I can learn that whole function. And now what I do is, now I put that out into the field into where I'm taking new depth images from a real camera of objects it's never seen before. And candidate grasps for that, that object. And then it'll tell me which one, basically it can quickly evaluate the grasps quality. And then what I do is I try a number of different grasps, again, synthetically on that depth, depth map. Mm-hmm. And it tells me this is the one with highest quality. So now what I do is execute that one that, that is, um, is, is defined. I mean, we, we consider that the optimal grasp, the one with highest quality, and we execute mm-hmm. it. Here's the thing. It works remarkably well, hmm. far better than we thought. Yeah. So that was a big surprise for us. That that idea that you could train it very fast, you can generate lots of examples, you can train a neural network relatively fast, again, another overnight, but then the result was it did generalize in, a, in surprising ways. Hmm. Now, it's not perfect, and it's not perfect, I will say, and it's really important, and by the way, I really believe it's our, it's our duty as roboticists to point out the limitations and, 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 and limits of our, of our work. So we're able to get up to the 90 plus success rate, 90 plus percent success rates, but it depends on the nature of the objects. So if the objects are all fairly well-behaved, like, like, like cylinders and, 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 and cuboids, then it's, it's, it's fairly easy to do well. But mm-hmm. it's when you have more complex geometries that the system, m- many systems have trouble. And this is where our system was relatively good. Again, getting above 90, but not, not, not close to 100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the generalization that you're referring to is specifically generalization in shapes as opposed to grippers, sensors, and any of the other pieces of the system. Ah, good question, Sam. So that that's actually a great point. We have to retrain this. If you change the gripper, mm-hmm. I have to I have to generate a new data set for that for your gripper, and then retrain a new neural network. Yeah, but the the framework should apply. So, and if you change the sensor, same story. I have to change the the generation of the samples, get a new a new training set, retrain the network, and then use that. So, in fact, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, just a quick story. When we first announced DexNet, we uh, it got picked up in some um, some some news reports, and we were contacted by industry, and they we, we they they quickly you know, taught us that, that actually we, we want to use this, but we use suction cups, not grippers. And we, uh, we, we, we sat and thought about that. I'll never forget. We we're sitting in the lab and suddenly it was like a light bulb went off and we said, wait a second, we can take the same exact framework and apply it to suction. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so instead of a two point grasp, we're looking for a single point grasp single point. and that's the suction point, And you want that to be robust. So kind of flat, kind of bigger than the suction cup itself, that kind of thing. That's right. But we can formalize if we formalize that in a paper. We 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 actually started looking around for literature, like how do you define the quality of a suction grasp? And amazingly, there was a gap in the literature there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we we looked and we could not find it. 
And to this day, I don't know of someone who's really nailed that question. But we've developed a, a model that looks at the the basically the points around the suction cup, how far they deviate from 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 planar, and a spring model that would that would give you an estimate of how how well the the seal would be achieved. And then we also looked at the uh, the the object in general and how what wrenches would be created as you lifted that object because it has to do with the center of mass and the angle of the of the surface you're you're making contact with mm-hmm. so you could come up with exactly the same physics that you were talking about earlier again a first wave type of approach but then we perturbed it by all the same ideas so we don't know the exact position of the surface we don't know the exact position of the suction cup we don't know the exact physics of the suction and the, and the frictions. So, but then we did the same thing. So then we have a model of suction cups and again, it worked remarkably well. Nice, nice. And so DexNet was a few years ago, a couple, like 17 or when? Well, it was 2017 that, that Jeff, and I, I really want to give credit to to to, um, to Jeff Mahler. This was his PhD work and he- okay. Most of the ideas. I mean, he was he he still he's now running a, a startup called Ambidextrous Laboratories, and Jeff is a, a brilliant student and really a great engineer. He he worked out a lot of this and um, and deserves a huge amount of the credit. So I I my my role was essentially guiding him toward toward taking a uh, basically teaching a, cl- a TAing a class that was uh, on on the mechanics of, of grasping because that's where he picked up the the physics aspect of it and then in our discussions with basically on dexnet etc that we started thinking okay how can we start to put this together but he had the idea of applying it to heaps of objects which I I was skeptical that that was going to work and then <laughs> I was very surprised what it did awesome awesome. Uh, so one of the, the things that uh, we kind of hinted on earlier, it's related to the, you know, first wave, second wave, third wave. I don't know if this is something that you'll want to comment on, but, you know, I think a lot of the way we think about robotics or maybe just some of the way we think about robotics is influenced by like the general uh why do I always forget their name? Not General Dynamics. Uh, Boston Dynamics. The Boston Dynamics <laughs> yeah. videos. Uh, right. As a roboticist, like, you know, and a particular roboticist that is, um, you know, thinking about things from the perspective of learning and AI. Like, what's your take on those? My perspective is that actually Mark Raybert was my first research advisor at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, wow. And I was I used to hang out in in that lab where they were doing the the, the running machine, which was um, at that late at that time just a single pogo um, actuator, and it was it was it was beautiful research. I think what I always what, one thing that attracted me to Mark was that he would always spend time showing the bloopers, and uh-huh. he would show the thing running, and then he would show it wiping out. <laughs> and the and it was really nice because he would always say, "Well, look at you know it's uh, it works, but not always." And somehow what I'm worried about and, and, and is that, for example, Boston Dynamics, when it showed, it showed the, um, the, the, the robot doing the backflip that got, you know, millions of views the recently. Atlas? Atlas the doing the backflip. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's remarkable and it's beautiful. But yeah. if, you stay, if you watch to the end of that video, it goes black for a little while. And if you stick with it, it then goes to a – it shows you a blooper. 
uh-huh. where it just totally wipes out. Yeah. And the fact is, that's very common. <laughs> All right. So, but they, 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 they sort of put that delay and most people didn't see that. So when I give talks, I always, I always show that blooper. Mm-hmm. And I say, this is what our world is, right? This is so important to convey. So I, I have a huge respect for Mark and his, his, his team at Boston Dynamics. But I think that they, the, at least the way the, the, the videos sometimes are portrayed are that, hey, we're, we've solved these problems. And robots are now capable of, you know, all kinds of agility, like a, like as good as, as a gymnast. And the reality is it's not, we're nowhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is interesting. So you're saying that we're not near the agility. There's a whole nother level of it or layer, which is at least as I understand it, like the self-directedness, it's not like someone said, robot, do a backflip. And it took 400 times, but it did 10 backflips. It's more, much more choreographed than that. Someone is plotting out the, the points, you know, in which it's doing the backflip, that kind of thing. Like, can you, is that your impression as well? Like, what's your take on that? You mean in terms of how well is it crafted or fine tuned? Mean more how, how autonomous is it? I think is is what I'm getting at. Like, or how is it, you know, the, the flip side of that being how orchestrate, orchestrated is it? Flip side, good. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but on <it's>, bump. <laughs> no, the 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 it's very. I, I would say, let's see, it's it's a little difficult to say, but I would say orchestrated is probably the right word. There's a lot of results, like you know, where you you look at something like OpenAI's um, hand doing a Rubik's cube, mm-hmm. and you what what's equally important to point out is that despite this huge and very impressive engineering effort that it still drops that cube very often and that the motions are very uh, the imprecise and inefficient. And we're, we're making progress, Sam. I mean, that's the thing I want to say. I don't want to, I don't want to cast a negative shadow on, on research, but I also think it's really important to understand that it's not nearly as fast as the, the, the public believes and the press often leads people to believe by mm-hmm. by highlighting the successes and not talking about the failures or the limits. Yeah. So that's what I was getting to where I believe that there's a lot of I do believe our field is is somewhat overhyped. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I think AI in general and I think robotics, we have we are making wonderful progress, but let's put it in context. And so don't over raise the expectations. Because I do worry about a robotics winter, yeah. where we're gonna, where people will say, "Wait a second, you told us we we're gonna have self-driving cars, and now we're still waiting for them, and this whole thing is a bad idea, so we're just gonna cancel all the projects." That is a real danger. You worry about that more than a robot uprising. <laughs> yeah, far more. I'm not worried about a robot <laughs> uprising. I'm totally not. <laughs> so now you're working on some. Uh some other interesting things since the, or beyond the, the grasping work, uh, a couple of things that I came across were telemedicine and some activity there, agriculture. You know, tell us about some of the, the more recent things you're up to. Okay. Well, one area that I've been interested in for many years is, uh, is, 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 is robot assisted surgery. And you may have seen sometimes hospitals who advertise that you have a robot, they're doing surgical, you know, they have a surgical robot. Well, what they mean by that, and it's intuitive, is the 
is the, by far the, the biggest biggest company in this space, is they have a system that a human can operate, a human surgeon, but that reflects the actual motions of the human in the body of the patient. And this has some great advantages. Because Meaning can, like haptic feedback kind of? Actually, that's it doesn't have haptic feedback, which is interesting. But it can basically take the motions I make with my hands, right? Mm -hmm. A surgeon is operating with, think of it as VR, and then looking down. Oh, the and, reflection one way from the doctor to the exactly. surgical studio as opposed it, to back. Exactly. In fact, it's very the only thing coming back is video from inside the body. And they do this very minimally invasive, you know, just a couple of small holes in the abdomen, which is very important for uh, recovery and mm -hmm. reduces infection and speeds up healing because oftentimes the big problem is you have a big scar and that's it, it, it has a lot of side effects. Yeah. So you, so this is a great, a huge breakthrough in, in surgery. It's it's fantastic, but, the, uh, but it's important to keep in mind that it's been completely controlled by a human every step of the way. So it's like a, a very, very expensive puppet. Mm -hmm. Now... One thing that's interesting, though, is it has the capability of offering a little bit of autonomy. And I think of this as, you know, the levels of, of, of autonomy in driving, self-driving car, right? to zero, which is where, you know, most cars are all the way up to fully autonomous, where you can, you know, you're, you're there's someone in front driving and you're asleep in the back. Mm -hmm. So CMM level five. Yes, exactly. The five levels. So. Uh, what what I believe in, and I think this is very true for for cars as well, is that we're we're actually making nice progress around level two or three, that mm -hmm. we can assist drivers under certain conditions. In, for example, there are nice nice weather and a freeway, and it's well controlled, right? And then you can actually give up control, and it, it's getting very good at doing that, and that's got a lot of benefits: saving um, safety and reducing tedium. Um, so, what's an example of in the Remote Sur surgery fields. The... So it would be where, for example, you are a surgeon is performing a complex procedure like a transplant and has to perform lots and lots of sutures. Mm -hmm. So suturing is very tedious, and it's it just it's you have to keep doing this over and over and over again, and yeah. clo closing up after a surgery. And that here's the thing: is that 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 uniformity. Consistency is very important in mm -hmm. in suturing, just as it is. And we've been doing sewing machines for a really long exact, time. Thank you. That's exactly what I was going to say. Right, because sewing machines are very nice and uniform. They do a beautiful job. And the same is true for for surgery. If you have a uniform stitch, then what happens is the 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 the, the healing can be spread out. The tension between the different stitches get the sutures get spread out. You the wound closes and heals better, less scarring, all kinds mm -hmm. of benefits. And they, they my father in law, who was a surgeon, uh, told me that the the difference between an average surgeon and a great surgeon is their 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 suturing skill. Mm. So if you could if you could facilitate that, you could reduce the tedium and increase the the, the recovery time, the healing. It would be a great thing, and but it's a very hard problem. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to work on. That as well. Right now, we're looking at debridement, which is just to be able to pull out dead or damaged tissue out of a, a particular um, body cavity. Okay. So if you had, um, you know, necrology, there's a certain area where they have some some dead tissue, or under certain illumination, you might see cancerous tissue, and you're just basically pulling it out with mm -hmm. a with a with a, you know a surgical tweezers. That's very tedious, also, but. That's something that I do believe we'll be able to uh, provide surgical assistance for. Okay. So there's all kinds of interesting problems there. With the uncertainty I mentioned earlier is even magnified with surgical robots because of the, the cables that drive them. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the control. Mm 
mm-hmm. and there's uncertainty in the perception, and there's uncertainty in the in the physics too. Mm-hmm. So, but that's another area that I'm excited about, and I think we're going to make some progress in the next few years. And agriculture, agriculture. Okay, so now we've been kind of talking about uh, precision agriculture, and there have been some successes like Blue River, which was acquired by Deer. That was, I don't know if it, would you consider that robotics? It's like the device mounted on a tractor that is using computer vision to check out the weeds as it's passing over and spraying them with a fertilizer to burn them out or pesticide or something. Right. No, I would definitely, because one of the things that what, what you're trying to get down to is, is controlling things at the plant level per plant level. Mm -hmm. Normally in agriculture, things are done, you know, on the field level, you know, you just sort of set, have a setting of your, of your combine that sort of set it, well, it's about right, you know, and then it runs over the whole field roughshod, you know, it just sort of, and, and what happens is you, you, you waste a lot of, um, of the food. You also, you know, it misses a lot of things, right? It's the setting is average. So it's, it's either too high or too low for, for the actual crops because they vary a lot. Mm-hmm. And you try to make the crops as consistent as possible. That's really the name of the game in agriculture. And you can do that genetically in other ways, right? So then your your machine can be more efficient. Mm-hmm. But it uses a lot of pesticides and other genetics and other other things to make that to control that food. So it, it the food is correspond the, the the plants are corresponding to the machine. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting is Maybe if you don't have to do that, but if you could have the machine correspond to the plant, mm-hmm. adjust to the plant. So that's where you want to be able to move through the field and detect what's going on, notice where exactly where the a weed is, is, is showing up, and then being able to zap that weed rather than just zapping the whole field with a big dose of pesticide. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is definitely robotics. It's being able to precision, get in and do that, and do that fast and cost-effective. Yeah. That's really exciting. It's also another area of that is is plant phenotyping, where you're driving robots around in a field where you're actually changing parameters and using it to look at the plants and see how they grow and to be, be able to pick out the more successful combinations of of, of parameters, of, of pesticides and fertilizers, et cetera. So there's a lot of interesting work going on. We are migrating. Are, de- are you describing like a... I'm envisioning a dynamic A-B testing or multivariate testing on your field that is all being affected by some robot. Right. Yeah. There are researchers hmm. who are doing this. So they, they plant the fields with all slightly varying you know, levels of seed spacing and seed type. And they basically are running a huge large-scale experiment. But they have, to mo- they have to measure what each of the plants are doing in terms of how they're growing. Yeah. It's very tedious. Mm-hmm. So robot is great for doing that. Interesting. And, and so what's your what's your lab doing in this space? So our lab is looking at, we started by looking at precision irrigation. And this is a project with colleagues at Merced and UC Davis. And the idea there was to use drones to essentially fly over a field and then identify where there, there was too little water or too much, and then adjust these small emitters all around the field, drip irrigation emitters, to compensate. Mm-hmm. One thing we found was that we couldn't, it was very hard to do experiments because uh, it's just that you have to you have to fly out. Usually, you have to to go into some remote area. You have to fly. You have to measure the ground conditions, and it was just taking forever. So we asked, could we? What if we try a little miniature scale version of the farm? And what if we build a farm in our lab? So to make a long story short, we we've 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 recently built one, and it's it's one and a half meters by three meters. So it's fairly small. It's not in the lab. It's in the greenhouse that's two blocks away from the lab. 
at Berkeley, and it is it is got over it a, a robot. This is a gantry type robot X, Y, and Z, and it um, it's it's made by a company named Farmbot. Mm-hmm. Now, so we're not innovating in the in the in the hardware. They're doing a great job with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a commercial company, by the way. You can I recommend them very highly. It's about three thousand yeah, dollars. At, at it for a while. It's kind of set up like a three D printer, but for gardening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's a really nice system, beautiful, and they they package it. It comes like a, it's like a, an opening an Apple product. You know, everything is totally organized and it's going mm. to set it up. It's non trivial to put together, but it's very very it's very effective. Mm-hmm. So we have that. And then what we've been doing, though, is adding cameras to be able to automatically monitor the state of the garden. And, okay. and what we're adding to it that 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 FarmBot doesn't necessarily recommend is we're doing polyculture gardening. So we want to be able to handle the case where I have lots of different plants growing in close proximity mm-hmm. and where there's a certain amount of un- lack of structure in the garden. So I'm not trying to keep everything separate. As, as, as monoculture and almost all like real farming is done, mm-hmm. but I want to let things grow in wherever they happen to grow. Mm-hmm. And there's benefits to that because you can reduce pesticides and increase resilience and reduce water and all those nice, nice mm-hmm. factors. Soil but, nutrients. Soil nutrients, but it takes more labor to be mm-hmm. able to do it. So uh, can, we, can we automate? Now, I think it's an open question. It's a very hard question because you have – a very high dimensional state space again of all the plants that you're looking at trying to make decisions about the action space in this case is if you look at a particular uh, uh, sector of the garden you want to decide do I just skip it do nothing today or do I water or do I prune or plant so it's a fairly small state space but um, can we learn over time now the other mm-hmm. problem is this this where this differs from something like grasping is there's a very long time constant. So if I'm going to try, if I grasp something, I fairly quickly to check, check that. But in a garden, it, it takes weeks to see the effect of my actions. Right. And if you thought we were bad at simulating grasping cylinders. Right. <laughs> right. And try simulating a bunch of different plants growing in close proximity. It's very hard. Now, there are people who have developed simulators for individual plants, and that's actually a whole you know, subfield. And, but, but when we talk to them about, well, what about if I have two plants next to each other? They're like, oh, we don't do that. <laughs> um, they do it in graphics, of course, but graphics of course, is a perfect example where like, you know, Jurassic Park or something, you can make amazing things are very convincing visually, but they're not realistic. Mm-hmm. So we've been developing a simulator that's very, uh, very, very simple, but allows us to test exactly this robustness aspect that you and I were talking about earlier, which is I want to be able to have variation in everything and then see if a, if a particular policy for planting and pruning and watering is robust to those variations. Okay. So that's where we're running and we and just come full circle, Sam, it's a we we also consider it an art project. Because the now we call it not the telegarden, but this is the alpha garden. Okay. And it's a it's basically it's an ongoing project. We 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 launched it at a gallery in New York that's doing an exhibition um called The Question of Intelligence. And so we this opened about a month ago. It's a and it's online. If you go to alphagarden.org, mm-hmm. and you can see images and you can essentially explore the garden. Um, you can't plant yourself, but it's made to be, to be able to observe what's happening. And we're by the way on the first season, and it will have multiple seasons. Every season is about two or three months. 
Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, one more question for you. We were talking before we got started, and, and this is maybe going back to health and medicine domain. Uh, it's the middle of March, kind of we're in the middle of the uh, the middle of the beginning of dealing with COVID-19. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned some kind of thoughts on how robots might play in uh, testing and assessments. Yeah. Something so you're I, working on? Well, I'm not working on it, but I, I've been following uh, some threads where one of them was that because we expect there, that, I mean, it's likely that there could be some real crisis in hospital uh, population where we may have a sudden spike in occurrences of the virus mm-hmm. in the next in the next four to six weeks or even sooner, and it will overwhelm the hospitals. So we're trying to flatten that curve and avoid that. But if it happens, one of the things is that people will want to suddenly report their you know how they're, they're feeling temperature and they have problems breathing. So what happens is though everybody wants to test all of a sudden, and we only have a limited number of tests. So what do we do? Well, if people are just self-reporting. As their the White House just announced, everyone should log in and you know sign up if you want to test. Well, everybody's going to overstate their symptoms because they want to be tested. So an alternative to that, which is really interesting, is to use cameras. Everybody has a camera built into their phone or their their laptop, and you use the camera to basically take a video of your face. And it and this is where the research is: is can we process that that video to extract the pulse rate and the oxygenation? of your oximetry of your of your body. Is that enough to give us signal to detect a viral infection? Well, like it's COVID-19? A, no, but it would be helpful, especially or in temperature, by the way, it would also might be able to be correlated with that. So you say you have 103, but I've seen video and that doesn't, it's not consistent, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things, this is a very complex question. You're right. It's not enough to just look at a video and say that person has it or doesn't. Well, but also, and I could get a pulse oximeter on Amazon for eight bucks, right? And if that's- Now you can, but it may be hard to get if this really gets, uh, <laughs> you know, if it really starts <laughs> ramping up. Plus, you might yeah. not have it with you, right? You're out somewhere or something like that. So, yeah. but if you just, you always have your cell phone. So if you could point that at yourself and get like a nice read mm-hmm. and you could send that, this would be very helpful for, for, for patient intake essentially mm-hmm. is the problem. So the problem is though, can we analyze the noisy camera that is on your phone, which is not as good as a high-quality video camera that they used in past experiments. So people have been able to extract heartbeat fairly reliably, but they're using a high-quality camera and it's calibrated, et cetera. So the open question is, can we do that with um, with uh, with commodity cameras? Yeah. So that's one interesting interesting question that's that's coming up right now. And I just want to say, I think that roboticists will have some, hopefully will be able to contribute to helping uh, address this kind of problem by facilitating telemedicine, robots that can be used, you know, to, to admit and screen patients, et cetera. Well, you so, can imagine the, you know, the pictures that we've seen of drive-through testing facilities right. uh, at some point in some future, you know, some of that could be automated through robots. Right. So the whole idea being you should be able to walk through those. You buy it, you get it, maybe a, like the kit of the swab and a few things, but you kind of you, you kind of walk through this, you know, and, it, and a camera helps mm-hmm. make, basically make sure it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, last thing, I know we're running out of time, but I, can I just mention this idea that I have about, uh, about complementarity? Please. All right. So very quickly, I want to address this issue you talked about earlier, Sam, about the the fears about robots taking over and becoming our overlords. Yeah. And I hear you. I mean, I think that's very, very prevalent. And it's even in very major publications like the New York Times and the New Yorker. But the reality is that we're, we're very far from that. 
And what I think is really was important to keep in mind is that robots have great potential. Robots and AI systems have great potential to enhance us as human workers. Mm -hmm. And they can reduce drudgery. So, for example, that they can help do many things in almost every job. There's some aspect of the job you don't like doing, and that's usually the most boring drudgery part. So can we get robots to do that? That frees up humans to do what we do best. Mm-hmm. which is interact with each other, to grasp and manipulate complex objects, <laughs> right? All these things that we're doing. And that that's what I call complementarity. So it's mm-hmm. the idea of looking at robots not as some threat that's going to take over, but it's actually something that will work with us in, in new ways. Mm-hmm. And I usually use the picture of, 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 uh, from Star Trek um, of Captain Kirk and Spock um, because they exemplify complementarity. Mm-hmm. Spock is kind of like a robot. <laughs> Right, it's all it's all about logic and 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 Kirk is all about you know intuition and 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 humanity. So the but what's interesting if you look at the show is that it's very much always the two of them working together, mm-hmm. and that message I think is extremely relevant today. Oh, we've seen that in industry uh, over the past few years. There's been a move in the robotics space to develop these cobots and to kind of optimize on the interactions between the human and the robot, both from kind of a safety perspective, but also kind of training through imitation and some other things. Right. And and you, you're using the human is in the loop, both for the training side, but also after that, that the, the human could be enhanced. So in a warehouse setting, you would have, you're not going to, people say, well, you know, we're going to wipe out all these jobs. Well, no, I really don't think that's going to happen for you know, any foreseeable future. We just can't get enough humans to work on these jobs. So in e-commerce, for example, which is exploding right now because of of of, of the COVID virus and and will only continue to increase, that we, we and also people are not wanting to come into these big factories or warehouses to to work. And so we need robots to assist. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be still a need for humans because there's all kinds of corner cases, and we can facilitate human making making intelligent decisions. But we're 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 not fully replacing the human. Do you think we iron out the social issues? Um, you know, the relationship between kind of income, well-being, and value creation, and time on job, and all these kinds of things to create a path to. This feature you're describing where, you know, the robots can get rid of the drudgery, but people can still make a living or, you know, be alive. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's super important to be to be very sensitive to that. And I think you're you're right. I mean, let's take, you know, the idea of um, drivers, right? Uh, There's been so much said about the imminent, you know, self-driving car Mm -hmm. and and there's many people who worry about that. They make their living um, driving, whether it's trucks or taxis or buses or or, or, or ride um, services. Mm-hmm. But I, I and there is a lot of fear out there. But I, I want to say that's we're not going to replace the, not those drivers. They just we're not going to put a um, a truck driver into driving. You're not going to be having a robot driving a truck through a city or a taxi for 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 thirty fifty years. It's just, it's, it's such a hard problem. So the driver's, you know, what the driver is, you know, his, the driver's value is no longer 
staying awake for long stretches on a pretty straight road. It's now right. getting this machine that got him from one end of the long road to the next in and out of the city and, you know, offloading the goods and all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it can support the driver, assist the drivers. And we're already seeing that with, uh, with, with something like Google Maps, right? Driving mm -hmm. in a city is a lot less tedious and stressful than it used to be. Because of Google mm -hmm. Maps, still stressful, but it's you yeah. know it's better. So you know where can we start thinking about other ways that we can do that to facilitate that we don't have to do the boring things, mm -hmm. and that's what I, I do think there's a, there's a lot of positive potential, and we're going to see a lot more of that. But at the same time, let's be very conscious of who is put at a disadvantage in all of these technologies. Uh, well, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, share a bit about what you're up to. It's delightful speaking with you once again. Oh, it's a pleasure, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.